Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Circe Institute Atrium Program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric, Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from Wes Callahan, you can choose either the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com slash atrium. Again, that's circeinstitute.com slash atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Wade on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is circeinstitute.com slash atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And Tim's not here yet. Tim got caught up in a meeting with his work. And so he's going to be here any second, I think. But we are getting started just because of limited time. And we thought we'd welcome you to this podcast, which is, of course, Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be answering your questions about Their Eyes Were Watching God, Zora Neale Hurston's novel. And Tim is here. Tim. And he got a haircut. Welcome. Which you cannot see. You are. You're looking. You look trim. You look fly. You look fly. Why, thank you. Rad. Thank you, Rad. Dope. Yeah. Tim, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. We were just telling everybody how... How are we doing on this Q&A? We're here to talk about the, the, the answering people's questions. We haven't gotten to the first question yet, but because oh, okay. of limited time, we should probably just dive right in, right? Should we just, should we just do that? We're just going to just go dive. for it. So here's where I want to start. DRI. This is a right question in. from Laura. DRI. Oh, yeah. I see what you're saying now. Yep. Dive right in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the close reads motto. DRI. Stay dry. Okay. <laughs> Laura says, if you were writing a follow-up 20 or 30 years later, where do you think Janie would be? Her routine, her, her return, talking today is moving more difficult than I anticipated. Her return to Edenville feels like a crossroads. She has lived half of her life with some very defining periods, but it doesn't feel complete in itself. It feels like preparation. She's found love and a measure of voice and independence, but that voice has not been tried. Will she meet a new tea cake and insist on love without theft or beatings? Will she remain the object of gossip? Will she reintegrate into a new role? Personally, I'd like to see her buy back the store and grow into someone who doesn't merely sit on the porch, but is queen of the porch, telling her own adventures or telling some guy to tell that mule story again. So good question there from Laura. Tim, how, as the playwright amongst us, how you're writing a play about 20 to 30 years later of Janie's life. We're assuming here that, that she has not proposal. died of rabies. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think the last proposal that Laura had is a great one. She's ruling the roost. She's on, she's like owning her own store. She's collecting the proceeds. She's telling the stories. She's on the porch. And if I, you're not you, invited on the porch, get off the porch. Do, do you think that that seems viable, Heidi? I, I, I just always assume people, if there's a way to assume someone's going to die at the end of the story, I would probably assume that. So I think she dies of rabies. However, I really like the idea of insisting on love I, without <laughs> theft or beatings because I too insist on that. So um, I'm, if, yeah. if she does survive the rabies, I'm in hopes of porch queening and beating free love for Janie. I have to say, Heidi, I'm not entirely clear on whether you think that her dying of rabies is the happy ending or, or the sad ending. <laughs> it's horribly sad to die of rabies. Yes. So I'm not for that. But I just Anna think Green Gables story, would probably think it's, it's a good ending. Right? Yes, she would. Everybody dies in her stories. Although they die a little bit less malevolently than rabies rabies just seems like man if you're gonna pick a bat it's like leprosy you know what i mean it just has this connotation to it um Mm. it seems pretty bad to do um so yeah i i don't know she is if if she does indeed not die of rabies i think singleness is 
the natural next step for Janie to like really own because even in her highest experience of love with tea cake it 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 isn't it isn't great like he's not a great man and um the story seems to leave a dot 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 on the question of good men like it seems like a proto-feminist kind of story that seems to be kind of trending toward the idea of a truly empowered woman doesn't need a man. So I wouldn't be surprised if she does indeed remain single. So there was a question that was related to this, and I'm trying to see if I can find it. Let's, let's go with this one. Tracy asks, she, she said that in, in an earlier episode, there was a discussion, uh, maybe some questions slash criticism about whether Janie could truly say she was happy or in love with tea cake based solely on her choice and interiority as opposed to exterior proof when her circumstances and his treatment of her seemed to contradict that possibility. But isn't that what love is supposed to be in a lot of ways, an act of the will and not dependent on circumstance? That doesn't mean one excuses sin or abuse, but Janie chooses to trust tea cake. She chooses to say to stay but the good outweighs the bad because they are bound together and growing together. And she does put her foot down a few times. He treats her as less than equal when we, when he won't take her out partying because he thinks she's above it, for example. And maybe we're only given tea cake and the men's perspective on the beating for a reason. It's another example of how they misinterpret her happens again at the trial. And then this is her question. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so, so the question is, what do you think about what she said? Um, Tim just kind of threw his hands up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. It's a hard one to. There was a lot in that, um, and thus I'm going to defer to Heidi. Oh, thanks, Tim. I really appreciate. <laughs> I don't that. know what to say. I don't know what to say. So I think that the ambiguity of Janie's great love is one of the is is to me the most interesting part of the story. Like by far, like by a long shot, the idea of whether tea cake was a man worth loving with all of her like big, beautiful hearts as Janie does. I think to me, that was the most interesting question that was raised by this particular novel. Uh, and I think that um, Zora Neale Hurston does, in my opinion, a masterful job of leaving that an open-ended question for the interpretation of the reader. I know, Tim, you came around to team cake by the end of the novel you were like kind of ambivalent towards him team tea cake yeah and then you ended right. up team tea cake and i i don't know that i could say the same and so i think that i was i was fascinated by how well drawn tea cake was as an ambiguous object of love to Janie, the subject the lover right and then that's that's the main movement of the story is Janie from object to subject right she was uh, she's a a desired object, and then she becomes then an engaged agent and subject capable of this big, robust love that's quite complicated. Um, and uh, and the the chosen character drawn by Zoriel Hurston in Tea Cake, uh, I think, leaves open to the reader whether or not we are on board. But he has to be ambiguous to make the question of her agency interesting, I think. And so I think Zora Neale Hurston did a really good job of drawing him as a character with all of his flaws and all of the goodness that's in him. And I think we're going to take a, most readers are going to take a stand on that, right? But there's some major red flags in their relationship that especially a modern audience who's very aware uh of of these issues is going to cast some judgment on tea cake and i think rightly so um but i think in terms of the actual structure of the novel he has to be somewhat ambiguous to make the question of her agency as a lover not just an object of love but as a lover an interesting one so so there's another question that laura another laura asks she says in janie's first marriage the idea of working in the field with her husband was distasteful but she approaches the work in the field of tea cake completely differently. Why is that? So on the one hand, I mean, this goes back to the question of Tim. You, um, Janie obviously was team tea cake in a way that she wasn't team Joe or team Logan. I mean, we're all team Logan green, but you know, other Logan character in the book. We're not so team Logan there. Yeah. What, right. So why 
to use your terminology, does Janie become so team tea cake that she approaches the same sort of work in a different way than she did with her first husband? And there are some similarities in the way that those guys treat her. Not in every way, but in some ways. So as someone... I'm going to sound like really inane because she loves tea cake. I mean, that's like overly simplistic, I guess. But maybe it's not that... Maybe it's not overly simplistic. (laughs) She loves tea cake in a way she didn't love Logan. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not in the way that she loved Logan. And I think... um, there's a kind of like sustenance to her or more substance to the relationship with tea cake than there was with the relationship with, um, Jody, Mm. like Jody, there's an infatuation at the beginning. It's, it it feels to me, it felt doomed from the beginning. Tea cake was her choice. She was forced into Logan. She felt forced into Jody tea cake, genuine choice. Of her own. Jody kind of swept her off her feet. I remember, I'm going to tell a story. Um, I'm going to change the identity of the person. But my brother and his wife and several friends of ours were sitting around at this table one night. And this is a story about how Jody swept her off her feet. <laughs> my brother and I are sitting at this restaurant bar, having a great time dozen friends of ours and in walks a friend of ours off of her second date. And she carried in her hand a dozen white roses that was given to her by this person on their second date. And our friend was just, Oh my goodness. Twitter pated. Yes. Twitter pated. And my brother and I looked at each other and we were like, no way, no way, like get out now. And we didn't really say much, you know, we kind of were polite and, but brother and I talked about it kind of off the air and I was just like, dude, a dozen roses on the second date. Uh, 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 uh. Wait, 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 hold we on. We were 100% right. Why is, 100% why is the dozen right. roses on the second date the symbol on of all that is wrong? date? On the second date? You don't even know her. You don't even know her. And I think that's what happened with Jody. We're going to need to, okay, we're going to need to pause here. And we have a Heidi Maybe weigh in on the dozen roses on the second date dozen verdict here. I need to know if, Tim, if, if Tim's right on this. I mean... <laughs> I've never given somebody a dozen roses on a second date. So, no, but because you're a sensible human being who knows how to court, which is why you have a lovely wife and a wonderful family. Well, thank you. On every count. <laughs> who, me? <laughs> no way! If I got, if I, I'm sorry. If I went out with a woman and on the second date, I'm thinking of someone right now. <laughs> And I went, went on like, and I showed up with a dozen roses. It would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. Come on, I'm, everyone out there. I hope everyone is like driving down the road, or you know, like listening to this in the living room or in the kitchen, and they're like, straight there, up, Tim. There might be some women straight out up. there, like, no, I take a dozen roses, like first date. So. I it would be great I've never to get thought them. about this before, right? <laughs> so, okay, so why would fair? I do do realize we have derailed, but this I mean, this is on I think on an anagogical level, this is one of the questions raised by Hurston in this novel, in terms right. of I, how to woo a woman, right? So, what kind of wooer do you trust? Is a big question of this book, right? So. Let me, can you put into words, Tim, why a man would give a woman a dozen roses on the second date and why that would be bad? Because he wants to obviously Uh impress the woman, obviously. Um, God forbid. He wants to sweep her off her feet. Obviously, Uh 
both of those things are, I think, like, neither of those are bad. Both of those could be, in the right circumstances, good things. The problem is that he doesn't even know her at all. He doesn't know her at all. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, and so you're going to come in with a dozen roses and here you go. I I mean, to me, I think it's it's, too much is what you're saying. Like it's way, it's such a romantic statement that it's disingenuous or it's an attempt to seduce her or he's too needy and way over. Yeah. yeah, I get, if it was, Hey, I was walking to your house and I picked some wild flowers because they were really beautiful. And, you know, I thought you might like them for your table. Great. No problem. Mm, it's the symbol of the, it's, a, it's a totally so different. So is the symbol stance. of the rose a dozen or the roses? symbol of the dozenness? Mm-hmm. No, it's the roses. I mean, it's also. I think if it's one one rose, you're getting. I think like symbolically, you're getting into a gray area. I think a dozen roses, you're no so longer it, in a gray area. What if it's like area. three? Is that just like devoid of all symbolism? <laughs> Yeah, one in a dozen. Yeah. The, you, you have a. But you can get those at a gas station for dollars. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I feel like we could do a whole okay. close reading of all you've right. got mail based on this conversation, but all all of the things, by the way, that Heidi said, like they could be signals. You know, that this guy's uh, like mm-hmm. too needy or whatever. All true. Or maybe true he just has good taste. Or maybe so he sees her as the kind of person right? who is the, a rose person. Maybe. But you're talking about like first date is the first time we've met. Yep. Like I just have met you one time and right. we had a good time on our date and we probably just had lunch or went to a bar for a drink right. or something. Right. But And then the second date way over the top with a dozen roses based on that kind of progression of yeah. the dating relationship. Right. Fair enough. I'm not saying that that receiving the dozen roses wouldn't like potentially feel kind of nice. I think it probably would. And it would send a message. I will say I remember when Scott and I were dating and we are we are I think we'd gone out on like three dates and I think I might have I was not yet his girlfriend. I know that. Right. Right. You guys hadn't had, um, you hadn't officially and, said so yet. Right. And I know this because this other guy asked me out like after this date and I didn't know whether I should say yes or no. But anyway, that's too much history. Um, But I remember we went to the mall (laughs) and he had a motorcycle and he offered to buy me a motorcycle helmet. Yep. Yep. And it was like $200. And I was like, we've only been on three dates. Thank you. Like, so you said I, yes, obviously. <laughs> and I knew then that he was, then I was like, well, this guy really likes He's serious. me. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, like he really likes me, but I, I was, and I wasn't offended. Like it was too much. It was more like, I don't know what to do with that kind mm-hmm. of like that kind of gift right now after three dates, when I just know I like you enough to wonder if I should go out with this other guy, you know? So it was, but it also made me feel very secure. So is Janie's problem is she didn't get so, to go anyway. through all these thought processes? She, every woman goes through this. And I think that this is one of the, one of the things that makes this novel good is that it does focus so much on a main part of the interiority of women that is, that does kind of examine those questions of subject object, right? Um, and how much say does a woman have? Um, in the progression of love and um, how much ought she, how much weight ought she to put on a man's affection at any stage of a relationship. And that's, those are, those are things that women, probably men too, but I know for sure women question and overanalyze and analyze, you know, and, and most women don't know the appropriate amount of time to put into those kinds of questions, um, especially in the beginning. And we have Janie for the full trajectory of her and of budding from, from Janie under the tree, watching the bee sink into the, into the blossom to Janie shooting tea cake with rabies. Like that's a big trajectory. That's a, that's a long journey. <laughs> right. It's a long so, journey. Yes. Although I will say the phrase kind of shooting tea cake with rabies is a little <laughs> bit of not exactly I what I, I, I might have been misleading. <laughs> she doesn't. 
shoot I love that. him with rabies. I love that, like, mystery. <laughs> he has rabies if she shoots him. Take this rabies. I, I love that, like, the idea of that, someone misreading it. As <laughs> what happened to Tea Cake at the end? He got shot with rabies. Get his shot full of his rabies. Wife, his wife shot How him with rabies. Die? rabies. Which is true, but not by Janie. So anyway, I, what, my my phrasing was misleading. <laughs> it's, it's all, oh, it gives a whole new meaning to the term jab in 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. But this that's a conversation for a different I think another day. thing about this book, while we're on the subject of rabies, is that this book has basically doubled my database knowledge about rabies so that now my database both includes their eyes were watching God and old yeller old yeller mm-hmm. and to kill a mockingbird that's true wait to kill there's a mockingbird has got rabbit rabies? dog in the street that they shoot there's a rabbit dog oh, and she has a, it's oh, the oh, wrong oh. time of year I didn't even know there's a right time of year for rabies you're so my, again, you're my rabies to your season. point I mean, about, yeah, that, I didn't yeah. know there was a rabies season right. until I read To Kill a Mock, and then I Googled it, and then I increased my database knowledge. Mm-hmm. But it was Wikipedia, so it might, I don't know. So It's more this, than I got, Heidi. The, the fact that I'm going I to transition to a question thing? now. That's so crazy. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> the fact that I'm going to transition now to a question has absolutely no segue available to me. So I'm just going to move on just because we only have so much time and there's plenty of questions. Rachel says, I would like to hear some thoughts on the title within the context of the story. I took it to me that they were wondering if they would die or lose everything watching God as they waited the storm. If she titled the book that I expect it means something more. So considering the lack of church in the novel, who is God and why are their eyes watching him? Now this phrase is used during the storm in the final block of chapters, the pages that we read, the final section. Um, Hi, did you want to touch on this first? So what are your thoughts that, I mean, her question is actually pretty open-ended, but what are your thoughts on, on the title? Yeah, I thought this was a great question and I love, I really like the title in light of the book, actually. Um, I thought at first that their eyes were watching God was I thought at first that the people were going to be dead and that they were going to be corpses with like these sightless eyes. And so that in that way, they were watching God as then looking at him beyond the veil. But it wasn't that at all. It was people in the storm, living people watching the storm. Mm-hmm. The rage of the storm. And yes. And so I think as I've thought about this over the last couple of weeks, um, To me, I think the statement then is, as we talked about in the last episode, this storm is this kind of implacable force without intent, right? Without conscience, without malice, without benevolence, that just uh, issues kind of grace and destruction completely arbitrarily uh, without any intent on its own part. And and, and in that sense, it has this godlike power uh, without any kind of actual intervening love or grace. And if that, in, in a story without generative power, without children, and without spiritual power, without church, that is a valid conclusion to come to about the nature of human life and human suffering. That the best we can do is watch the storm and try to get out of its way, right? But the storm isn't trying to be mean. And the storm, if it spares you, isn't because it loved you, right? So there's this kind of pagan or animistic vision of the natural world conflated then with the supernatural. Um, And the conclusion we have to come to then is that the storm is this kind of symbolic vision of how she sees, how Hurston sees God. She doesn't believe. So I'm, can I read the paragraph where that shows up? Yeah. It's on 160. It's during the storm. Um, I'll just read the paragraph before too. He dropped to the floor and put his head in her lap. Well then Janie, you meant what you didn't say. Cause I never knowed you were so satisfied with me like that. I kind of thought, Then the wind came back with a triple fury and put out the light for the last time. They sat in company with the others in other shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls and their souls asking if he meant to measure their puny might against his. They seemed to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. 
Um, as soon as tea cake went out pushing wind in front of him, he saw that the wind and water had given life to lots of things that folks think of as dead and given death to so much that had been living things, water everywhere. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of flood <laughs> allusions here. Do you, do you think there could possibly be anything, uh, Plato's cave illusion going on here? Say more, David. That, I, Go on. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, the, so they sat in the company with others in the shanties, their eyes straining against crude walls. So you've got this idea of like, huh. they're in the dark. Huh. Yeah. Others in the crude, there's these crude walls. They're straining their eyes. They're trying to see something. And their souls are asking if he means to measure their puny might against his. So their souls are asking, does God mean to measure himself against us? Is he, are we being measured against his power. So they're asking that. They seem to be staring at the dark, but their eyes were watching God. So they're staring at the dark. They seem to be staring at the dark, but their eyes, it's saying their eyes are watching something. So there's a, there's the structure of this sentence is they seem to be doing one thing, but they actually were doing something else. So if you looked at them, they would have seemed to be looking at the dark, but they're actually looking at God. Um, so then it made me think of, Plato and the cave and I'm not an expert on, you know, we need Matt Bianco. It would fit. It would fit because the whole story of the cave is that what if somebody were to escape from the cave and go out and experience the real world and then come back into the cave and try to set the prisoners free who are chained and looking at the wall. Right. And then in such a case, the prisoner that that freed man would have to be killed, right? They would assume he was a madman and they would murder him. Well, he would no longer be fit for the cave. And yet, or he would be, his soul would have grown too big for the cave uh, and there'd be no longer any place for him there. So, and that I think does. Yeah, the next thing that ha- literally the next the thing that happens is they leave. And then he gets bit and and becomes a madman. And then he gets bit and becomes a madman and dies. And so I actually think that that's really, really brilliant, David. Well done. Clap, little clappy. So are we going to say that (laughs) that tea cake? Two finger clap. (laughs) Are we going to say Imagine it bigger. Tea cake is the kind of like enlightened one returned from this kind of like incandescent vision of the real world. I mean, I get the, I get the, I think it would have to be Janie. Like it wouldn't be a straight one-to-one, right? It would have to be Janie having gotten, and that's what happens. Like she ends up going back to Eatonville and nobody receives her, right? Mm -hmm. They don't, because she's grown too big for the town. There's no place for her. Um, And so that, I think that, I think that what, I think, I don't know if it's intentional, but it definitely fits. And it seems like it could be intentional. I like it a lot. That's good. Okay. Let's see here. Do you have any thoughts on the title, Tim? <sighs> While I'm looking, trying to find the next question. I mean, I thought about it, but I, I felt like that part of the book, these kind of like asides, these philosophical asides, um, were some of the most interesting parts of the book. And they were also some of the most, they were the kind of like the most thematically confusing to me. Um, yeah, I can see what you're saying. I had a, th- I, I, I just wondered how they corresponded with our overall characters and plot. And I, and I just failed to tie them in, in a way that was really, Satisfying. It you might mean be just these asides, error as a whole. Yeah, these asides. Like they were like it's so interesting, right? Like some really like powerful writing and interesting thoughts. And I would finish it, and it was like, oh yeah, wait, no. How does this correspond with the whole? And I fully admit it might just be that was my first reading of this book, and upon a second reading, those things would kind of correlate more neatly but I struggled with it. But not in the way you, you struggle with Ayn Rand, right? Not in the way that I struggle with Ayn Rand because no, no, we can just, we could go. Yeah, how are things with the, uh, when are we going to read the fountain head on this? Your, your Ayn Rand enthusiast association group. 
We made up a fake. Yeah. Oh, so I, a we made up a yeah. To our right. listeners, we made up a fake group like that Tim's Rand. a part of called the Ayn Rand um, Enthusiast Association area, and area. Tim's Tim's a part mm-hmm. of a fake area group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, okay. <laughs> Do we need to like say? Can, okay. Do you need to be more clear that you're show, not an Rand fan? Ayn Rand is kind of our go-to symbol author for one who writes propaganda and not particularly well. Having said that, I had an Ayn Rand experience when I was, I don't know, 20 years old. I read Atlas Shrugged and I saw a new vision of the world, a world where individual action and fortitude solved all of the world's problems Groupthink, these communitarians with their sniveling need to like and this is hide in the you know, we don't have all day, great so, ones. So continue, but eventually <laughs> okay, wrap it sorry, up. Sorry, <laughs> I got really into it. I, I you can tell I was like channeling like twenty year old Tim, and I think that last since then he hasn't four, been to an area meeting. <laughs> since then, that I have not been to an area meeting. I, I that my Ayn Rand phase lasted about. 38 minutes. And then I was like, this is terrible. This is terrible. She has remained at the top of my list of most, most, yeah, I'm going to say it, despised authors. And by the way, by the way, I have to say it and then we can move on. In the 1980s, they did a poll of Americans, like a a really big, you know, like well-tabulated poll what books were most influential on you for all Americans? Number one, the Bible. Number two, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And there we have it. People are idiots. <laughs> Except for the Bible no, no, no. part. I don't not, know that people are not. idiots, but like, what a picture. Like, for me, I'm like now in like complaining mode against the United well, States. That is, I'm like... That so just makes so much sense. The odds sense. are then that you had some people who chose – people either voted the Bible or they voted Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged as their Bible. That's kind right. of like the test. Right. Okay. So speaking of culture and time periods and so forth, Ilya Grubbs has a question. She says, I would love to hear more discussion on the culture and time period and how it influences the book and the way the characters are written. I know we typically try to evaluate books on their own merits, but I feel like this is one of those, like the sun also rises, that cannot be under- experienced outside of the culture that birthed it. There were times in the discussion, like the question of how Joe Starks suffered or the way women were treated, that I think would benefit from insight into the unique culture of black Americans in the early 1900s. Um, she did say if she's behind. So if you talked about this towards the end of the book, just ignore the question. But I feel like we could at least touch on it a little bit. Was there anything, I'm going to turn this into a question for you then. Was there anything as you thought about this book that either opened your eyes more to the culture and the time period or where understanding and knowing about this culture and time period helped you experience the book more fully or unlock something about the book for you? Um, or was there an area perhaps even, and I'm going to kind of added some negation to this. Was there anywhere where you felt like maybe you were not grasping something because you didn't know something about the cult? Like it was seemed to be saying or alluding to something about the culture that you didn't have access to. I really like all of those questions. I think for me, what, what if first First of all, one of the reasons we read books like this is to understand a particular culture. So I think that one of the big benefits of novels like this or like The Lost Generation, you know, uh, is that it takes us out of ourselves and out of our own cultural assumptions and puts us like smack in the middle, immersed within the way the culture feels, the kinds of people that come out of it, that kind of thing. Um, And so this is in itself research into that culture is what I'm saying here. We don't necessarily, in my opinion, have to step out of it and go do a bunch of kind of like disembodied research into the culture. We can read this and be like, oh, now I know, now I can, in a, to a small extent, understand what it felt like to 
live and dwell as a member within this particular community. I think Wendell Berry does that. I think many of the authors that we read here do that. Um, and so I don't think it's necessary to do like an academic study of the Harlem Renaissance in order to really understand what it was like to, to be there. Although if you're interested in that, do it by all means, but you don't need it, right? Um, I think that there were a couple of points in which I wish I knew more, as you just said, David, uh, in which I thought, oh, I should look that up because I'm interested now, because I'm so invested emotionally in the story and in these characters. I want to know, like, is this just, was it just assumed that men beat their wives? Was this part of this particular culture or was this like prevalent throughout all of American society? Or is this just this kind of substrata here? Like I was interested in that. Um, and, and so, uh, at that point, yeah, I could have like looked it up, but you know, I didn't, I, I just didn't, but um, that I think is, yeah. And there was a lot in there specifically about being a woman um, and in understanding kind of the vibrant black communal culture that I really loved, especially in yeah. the muck and the muck. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. I didn't know that everything was so communal. I didn't know about like the food and the singing and the dancing and the play, the games and all that. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Like, I'm glad I know that I'm glad because I think right now there's, um, there's, there's not, I, I am not encountering a lot of celebration. Um, there's a lot of emphasis right now in the public square um, on on kind of on how the culture, how that particular culture was oppressed, right? And that's a good thing. But I also really liked being immersed in some of the good things about it. It really helped me understand and love it more. I I really appreciate what you said, Heidi. I mean, this book it seems I, I think. Um, all the pretty, not all the pretty horses. The Sun also rises is a great comparison for this book. It's mm -hmm. really a time capsule in a way. And what I love so much about um, the Sun also rises is it makes me feel like what I think those characters felt like after World War One. You know, it's kind of, but. I think I would feel that way regardless of whether or not I knew that book was written in the shadow of World War One. In the same way, I really love like kind of like feeling what it would like in some way um, in that culture, in African-American culture in the South in, or in Florida. I really appreciated that. There were so many aspects of it. I was like, oh yeah, this is a, this is like a completely different sort of experience than it is, than is my experience. Um, and it does make me want to read more of that history surrounding that time period in that culture. So you guys see that? I think that's one of the, that's one of the great merits of the book for me is that like, oh, I, it makes me feel like maybe a little about what it would feel like to be back then. Did you guys see the news story about the kid, college age kid or so he was in trouble and at risk of jail time in, in somewhere in the United Kingdom. He had downloaded like, I don't know, 80,000 pages, some huge amount of pages of white supremacists, just like, you know, bleak, dark, documents, mm. you know, and they were, he got arrested. They were worried that he was plotting something or, you know, whatever. And he goes before the judge and the judge, because he was, because of his age and because of his, he had no priors, the judge basically let him off with jail time, kind of a probation thing. But part of his probation was that he had to read classic works of literature. So he has to read Shakespeare and Jane Austen and Trollope and a bunch of this is people. signed by the judge. Yeah, and the judge is like, "This you show." <laughs> yeah, no, right? right. I mean, basically, he, he, the idea that when you read, you learn to be empathetic. You ex you 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 mm -hmm. have you experience. You feel what other people felt in a way that's not accessible to you in any other way. And I, I do think literature is unique in this. Like, you can watch a movie, but and even the greatest the greatest performances can make you feel, you know, a sort of pathos. But when you read, there's something about being inside the head mm -hmm. of that character mm -hmm. for an extended period of time 
and you know, you know me, I love movies, Tim, you love the stage, but it's a different experience. It's a different sort yeah. of, of empathy that we, that we're able to glean. David, do you think that is because of the time period that we typically have to spend on a book? You mean like it takes, you mean like how much time you spend it in the character's head as opposed to a movie's two hours long? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, I think so. I mean, I think you just, you have to do, you have to work to be a part of that. And I think when you put that labor in to actually do the reading, whereas even if it's a challenging play or a challenging movie, it's a more um, passive experience. I mean, even yeah, age, I think you're right. I totally agree. So I, I do think the time totally has anything agree. to do with it. But Heidi, didn't you, didn't you bring up Marsha McLuhan? Was it last week or the week before? Did you bring up Marsha McLuhan? No, maybe not. Okay, the whole you theory that there are different modes of engagement with media. And he had this notion that television and movies, Marshall McLuhan is a media theorist in the middle part of the 20th century. TVs and movie are what he called a cold media because it's a little bit counterintuitive because they're so active on the screen. You're like, why would you call that a cold media? It's because your response as a viewer is relatively cognitively cold. It is doing the work for you. A, t- a really good, I mean, TV show is doing the work for you. It's showing you and telling you what you need to know. Whereas reading a book, a novel is hot media because it requires so much of you mm-hmm. to kind of create and imagine the world that the author is trying to convey. And you can scale so the I, amount that you engage with it. Like you can be super engaged right. or you can be you can kind of gloss over it and let the surface of your imagination capture it, or you can go really deep and you can almost like build the yeah. world out. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think that, I mean, the time, the amount of time that you spend inside the character is one aspect of what makes novel reading so compelling. Mm-hmm. But I think the other part of it is just the medium. It demands more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sake of time. We've got like 16, 17 minutes before Heidi's got to go. Uh, I think pick up Jack. Okay. Michelle asks this, Tim, let me put this to you first. And I want to move through a couple of these quick because there's me just because we don't have much time. How would this story be different if Janie weren't wealthy? What is Hurston saying about wealth in this novel? Are these beliefs in conflict with her real life experiences? Now, I don't know that we know enough about her real life experiences to write a thesis here in the next five minutes of the podcast, but how do you think this story would be different if Janie weren't wealthy? And I, I mean, if she weren't wealthy, so much of it wouldn't have happened, but thematically. I kind of think that her wealth is a sign of victory for her. Um, not like I've triumphed over my enemies and put them under my foot, look at me, all of my lucre. But I think that in a way she has survived and inherited the wealth of Jody, which she helped contribute to, of course. Um but I think like the ability to accumulate wealth at that particular time in that particular place was a like profound challenge. And so I think that it'd be right for us to see it as a reward as opposed to the kind of warning sign. A book like The Great Gatsby tends to see wealth as indicative of um, kind of degeneracy. I think in this book, we should read wealth as almost the opposite, a sign not of degeneracy, but a sign of, I'm not going to say virtue, but a sign of like maybe capacity and industry and yeah, capacity and industry. What do you, what do you think, Heidi? Do you agree with that? I like that. I I really, I do agree with that. Uh, Another thing to point out is that the, the money doesn't seem to mean that much to Janie. Um, uh, other than just security and the ability to make her own choices in a way of another a way of giving her agency over her own life. Um, yeah. I also think it provides a contrast between Jody and tea cake. That's really necessary to the story and that Jody can give her everything materially that she needs and more. And yet she still doesn't choose him. She chooses the poor man, the shiftless man, the man uh, always on the move, the man who cannot provide the same kind of life. And yet she loves him, which is yet another way of highlighting her agency and her choice. 
Mm. That's a great, great answer. Okay, let's move on to the next one oh, for the sake of time. Kill it. <laughs> this is from Suzanne. <laughs> Do you think there's a connection in Janie's comment to the beginning of chapter 20 that love is like the sea to the first paragraph of the book? So on chapter 20, she's talking to Phoebe. She says, I know all them sitters and talkers going to worry. They get, st- they get into fiddle strings until they find out what we've been talking about. That's all right. Tell them. Um, you must tell them that love ain't something like a grindstone. That's the same thing everywhere. And do the same thing to everything at touch. Love is like the sea. It's a moving thing. But still in all, it takes its shape from the shores it meets. And it's different with every shore. So comparing that to the opening of the book, ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Is she drawing, is she closing a loop, a thematic loop here in chapter 20? Yeah, I think so. I think it's another contrast between men and women, which to me seems to be the biggest uh, contrast of the novel. It's not black and white. It's man. It's a men and women. Although the question of race is there. It's it, it's woven into the story, but doesn't seem to be the same dichotomy and exploration that I men agree. and women are. Yeah, I agree. And I think the sea is a, a metaphor then that, that the contrast is that men are constantly moving towards the horizon. They're goal oriented, right? According to the, the terms of the novel, they're, they're wanting something beyond. They're always going on a journey to look for something, right? And women are, they're, they're adaptable, right? Like they there, there's this movement, this undulation, this uh, this incoming and outgoing uh, of love and desire and choice and agency, um, and 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 a woman is kind of this curving, responsive, um, embracing of the undulations of life instead of this like constant looking into the horizon and movement towards some kind of elusive goal. So when he talks about horizon here, in the beginning, she talks about the horizon. In 20, it talks about the idea of love takes its shape from the shore it meets. So is that the opposite direction of the horizon then? Is it as if, or, or is, or do you move towards the horizon thus towards the shore? Or, they, or in the metaphor, you think there are shores behind horizons ahead? So you have the choice, in other words, to go to the shore and take the shape of that, or you have the choice to go out right. towards the horizon. Is that is that the idea? I think that I do. I think that the idea of the shore. So I'm gonna. I am. I'm gonna make myself sound like such an idiot <laughs> right now with what I'm about to say. So you should know that my tastes in books are higher than what I'm about to reveal to you. But I did indeed read the I'm Twilight brand. series. Oh, sorry. So the worse. Twilight series. I, no, it's at least not worse. Anne at least you know what you're getting. Relatively like well written. Twilight's horrible. I, it's a terrible, terrible series. I'm ashamed to admit that I've read it, but I have to in order to make this point. It might so, be better, honestly. Um, um in in Twilight. There's this constantly used metaphor of, okay, so you know, it's about like this vampire boy who marries this like human girl. It's so bad. Yeah, but we know, anyway, we know Twilight. When, yes. Okay. So, but I, I know, you know, Twilight, maybe there's smart people who don't hear about it, who think that. Unlike you, maybe there's smart people. Rating myself right here, but yeah, exactly. This is what I'm saying. So whenever I can't even remember their names right now. Whenever vampire and human girl, vampire boy and human girl kiss, it always describes her mouth taking his shape. Right. So because she's human and pliable and he's like this, he's made of like like metal or whatever. Bella, Bella's one. And so she, Bella, yes. So and Edward. So she has to adapt, like her body has to adapt to him. Like he's this pillar unmoving and when she kisses him, her lips form to his, right? And I think now that I have confessed that I've read the book and remember that detail, nauseating detail, then I can say that I think that that's somewhat what she's getting at about the shore thing, that that there's this adaptability, this ability to embrace and receive and to assume the shape of 
that she's saying that women have that where men don't have. They're moving towards this in like elusive goal on the horizon, whereas women are embracing and forming the power of the sea and and receiving it um, and not taming it, but but being receptive to it and taking the shape of. And and that adaptability is something that we see in Janie that becomes that is both her downfall and her glory. And I think that is one of the statements she's making about femininity in this story. I just have to say, Heidi, you are on fire. (laughs) David, right? Heidi's on fire today. Heidi's been on fire for like at least a month and a half, if not longer. That was such a great thoughtful she's got like answer. A, she's, like, she's in spite on one of, of the Twilight reference? I think the Twilight reference was spot on. Makes the whole I mean, thing. It was spot on. It's embarrassing, but it fit. That was a and connection And you owned it. You owned so. it. You were like, I've read Twilight. I'm not going to hide it from my listeners. <laughs> okay. We have eight we minutes left, and I'm going to bring up a question that Reed Thank asks, you, which Thank does, you. which is a little bit complicated. Yeah, great job, Heidi, and whatever. But I'm going to ask a question anyway. Um, oh, you weren't listening. Yeah, I don't know. I'm usually not listening to you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm usually listening. Usually, I know. Um, I do want to address this question that Reed brought up because I've heard it in a couple other contexts as well. I feel like it's at least important to give us to give us a couple minutes to address. So Reed says this. Let me preface with this. This is Reed talking. I've been sitting on my question since the first episode, and I don't quite know how to ask, <laughs> ask it without sounding like a jerk face. So, no, that is not my intention at all. I appreciate the thoughts and efforts of the hosts. Close Reads is more than a podcast. It's a community. We agree. Um, Tim, Heidi, and David are the siblings I never wanted, but now I'm glad that I have. Uh, now to the question. <laughs> What role, if any, should identity politics play in discussions of literature, music, art, culture, etc.? I ask this because the first episode of, uh, or two of Their Eyes Were Watching God had our beloved hosts seeming to apologize for being white or male, parentheses, not Heidi, and parentheses, or, be, or coming from a place of privilege. And I find myself doing the same thing recently in an Odyssey discussion. I know I'm not a woman, but I think Penelope should have dot, 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 whatever. That seems like another conversation for another day, Reed. This impulse concerns me, he says. Why should my identity matter when discussing things trying to get at truth? Truth doesn't change because of my intersectionality or lack thereof. Should I come across as apologetic in discussing a culture that is different from my own, etc.? Who cares what I am? Speaking as a... He puts that in parentheses. When we add that little phrase describing our position in the social hierarchy, then aren't we, we aren't talking about truth anymore, are we? Should someone be, pay attention to me because of who who I am? Is truth accessible to them only through a special cake mix of identities? Or is truth accessible to all through their rationality? We're on a slippery slope here where we might deny people's thoughts and ideas, including our own, because of who they are. So I'm not sure if that was a question or a tirade posing as a question, but I do have a question. (laughs) I'll repeat it. What role, if any, should identity politics play in discussions of literature, music, art, culture, etc.? Now, we have six minutes before Heidi has to leave. So Heidi, I'll let you respond to this first, but I will say on my for for my part i don't think we're apologizing at the beginning of the show like the comments that we made for who being who we are um or being born into the context that we were born into what we're trying to say is we understand that the experiences that the characters in this book experienced and that the author experienced are not something that we have experienced but they're the experiences that we want to honor and us a canon of literature, a part of American literature that we want to respect and that we want to share and that we want to discuss and we want to be part of the other kind of things that we're talking about. But because we haven't experienced those, we want to be just, we're not apologizing. We just want to be respectful. So I think that's, that's how we were thinking about it. Heidi, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I do. I think that, um, I think Reed, Reed's bringing up a really important and point, mm-hmm. especially right now in this particular and one we can't, we, we truly cannot answer it in one episode. Right. Let alone five minutes. Um, exactly. Um, but I think there's a couple of things. One is the question of identity politics, which was a phrase used in the question. Identity politics, politics is not something I care about at all. Uh, however, 
I do care about identity. I care about being human. And one of the reasons that we read is in order to understand perspectives that are not our own. And so it behooves us, I think, then to have a humble approach towards that particular perspective that we're reading about. And I do think it matters to be able to say, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know as a woman how a man thinks, which is why I'm reading a book about it, right? Like, so in this, in this context, we're reading a book about what it means to be a Black American woman in one of the most troubled times for Black Americans in our history. And so it is wise to be careful in an approach to that, to have an empathetic and a humble uh, approach and an approach that says, this is a world I don't understand. And yet I'm commentating on it publicly. Uh, and, and so therefore, because of there, there is a sense of um, just kind of like, you know, inside baseball here, there is a sense in which what the three of us say about Janie is going to be heard by a lot of people the way it wouldn't be if we were in a, like sitting around over coffee and no one was recording it. Right. And so it adding that kind of uh, weight to a conversation that's fraught in the public square right now, that was fraught at the time that the book was written and for good reason that the book is about. Right. And then I get to come in and talk about it. What an honor, what a privilege, but one to be really careful of and speaking about an oppressed culture that was oppressed by my culture. So I think that is important to treat that with care. And if we're overly careful, I would rather be overly careful than not careful enough with Mm -hmm. something that fragile Mm -hmm. and that important. Tim? Part of what's interesting about the question is that there's this sense that um, identity politics is set in juxtaposition with the truth. And I think there's... um, some frustration there that Reed is trying to express. And I, I, and obviously he doesn't have a chance to guess about <laughs> and clarify. What's that? And he doesn't have a chance right now to clarify or respond or whatever. On yeah. What we're saying. But I want to say, I mean, like That's a great I, question. I can guess where that question is coming from. And I'm sympathetic with the kind of, I think where that frustration is coming from. Um, I do think there's, I think there's a vision of seeking the truth, which is sort of set in contrast with being an embodied and cultured human being, you know, like it shouldn't really matter like what culture I was born in. It shouldn't really, it shouldn't really matter um, the pigment of my skin. It shouldn't matter. And I, I think, think I'm a little bit suspicious of that because I think that one of the kind of like real insights of the last 50, 60, 70 years is that those things really do matter. They really shape how we navigate the world. Um, That can be taken too far. Of course, there can be kind of like a hubris on the other side, which is you will never understand because you didn't walk in my shoes. And I think that's kind of like tipping the scales in the opposite direction. Um, So I just want to say I'm really sympathetic to to the idea that my reading of this book is really shaped that, you know, I'm a suburban white guy born, you know, living in 2021. And I think that David and Heidi and I were all trying to kind of like, just acknowledge that right out of the gate to just acknowledge that. Um, And I think part of reading well is just trying to put aside like kind of like hubris and take on the humility of trying to enter into a culture in a world that's not our own, but, and, and to kind of like show curiosity about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I think, I think part of the reason we read books like this as with any book is because we want to learn more about other people's experiences and what it means to, mm-hmm. to live in worlds that are different than our own. Um, and we just, 
you know, I think Heidi's point about how like a lot of people are going to listen and we had, so that kind of can be a little cautious just about how, who are we representing when we speak? Yeah. Becomes a little bit. It's not what, you know, if Reed, if you're talking to friends around the table, maybe there's, there's context where you wouldn't need to bring it up, you know? We're not doing that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I also want to say, like, I really want to express real sympathy with where I think that Reed is coming from. And I, and I think there's, I mean, I've been in enough academic circles that I've heard this kind of response, which is something like, I read this book or I read the Odyssey or I read something else. And my understanding of it is X. And when the rejoinder is, well, that's because like you're a middle-aged white guy that may be true. I also think that's like we're getting into a variety of the ad hominem fallacy when you mute someone's voice um, just because mm-hmm. of things that don't necessarily have to do with the argument that the person is making. Yeah, it's anybody can use their imagination. Yeah, and you can enter into well a conversation. And you can use it poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think to mute somebody because their kind of preset to never be able to understand it, I think is really, it's unfair and it's worse, really uncharitable. Particularly when people oftentimes are reading a book like this or entering into a conversation like this with the goal of trying with to the understand. Goal of trying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Heidi had to go. She had to go pick up her son. So we should go ahead and wrap this up. But hey, we're going to start the Book of the Dun Count next week. We're going to read part one uh, for the episode that will go up on September 10th. We record on Thursday. Episodes go up on Friday. So if you're listening to this, probably sometime after September 3rd. Um, so September 10th will be part one, and then we'll do part two, and then part three each of the following weeks after that. Um, so, Tim, do you have any final thoughts or anything on their eyes are watching God before we move on to the book of the Duncan? I am going to just compliment Heidi while she's off the air. She, I thought she was just so terrific on this book. And I, while I really enjoyed the book, doing the podcast for me, I was walked away and I was like, oh man, I missed a lot in this book. And Heidi saw a lot more than I saw. And so that's my party thought. Yeah, it was great because she was able to bring in the female perspective mm-hmm. on certain things that for all, you know, as much as you and I might try, there's yeah. just things that are not going to come to the surface instinctively. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, Absolutely. So what, what about for you? Is there, do you have a final thought? Like we finished the book. What do you think? Um, I, I find the Harlem Renaissance era, the, those, those artists to be so fascinating and such a crucial part of American culture. And I, I think that if you haven't, dived into other artists in that era, whether it's the sculptors, the painters, other novelists, the music. I mean, even if it's not your sort of instinctive cup of tea, doing so will help you understand so much about where we are now, what culture looks like, and also help you help, help broaden our imaginations absolutely, and our understanding of what it means to be Americans. Um, so I highly recommend that if you haven't done that. I mean, I wasn't a huge Hurston fan, but I am a big fan of a lot of other people from that era. And so it was, it was great to be able to add this to the other things that I've studied and read uh, from that era. It seems to me like we, those of us in the classical world really invest deeply in these kind of explosions of artistic, of like incredible artistic output. Um, Greek mm-hmm. tragedy in three four hundred BC Renaissance sculpture Renaissance sculpture and Renaissance painting like these are like these moments these marked moments where Elizabethan drama yes absolutely it's not just Shakespeare but it's Marlowe and it's like stunning stuff is coming out of that period and this is one of those periods I think especially if you're an American where it's worth paying attention to and kind of like enculturating yourself to the Harlem Renaissance because um, it's not just an explosion of incredible creativity, but it's also at this really unique and pivotal time in African-American history, which is such a huge part of the narrative of American history. So it's worth, I, I, I kind of, I don't want to get on a soapbox too much, but 
Well, I'll do it. Um, our friends at Skole have recently introduced a um, a series. It might be under Classical U on the. I think it's the black intellectual tradition. I think if mm-hmm. you search that, it's close enough that you would find it. And I, I just, I just think that is the absolute right direction to go as the classical movement is kind of hopefully expanding its borders. That's a direction that needs to be welcomed, and it and mm-hmm. it takes effort to welcome it. You know, it takes effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, as I said, Book of the Duncow is next. That's Walter Wenger and um, Junior's book. After that, we're going to do A Gathering of Old Men by Ernest Gaines. With that, for Heidi White, who is no longer with us. I mean, she's with us, but she's not here. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.